0: Are you confused yet? Uh, Are you confused by the book of one Kings so far? Are you left scratching your head a little bit as you hear about all the Jeroboams and the Rehoboams and the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom and all the names of all the different places and people and the different prophets that come in and out and the strange events of this book of the Bible? Are you a little confused yet now that we're five or six weeks into this book? If you are, that's okay. All of us are at least a little bit confused, at least some of the time, by this part of God's word. Uh, but whether or not we're totally confused or just a little bit, I can say that it's still worth the effort. It's still worth the hard work investing in understanding what God is saying in these parts of his word. I know that we will reap what we sow when we work hard and look into and dig into God's word. Well, let's remember now where we've been the last few weeks so we don't get too confused by all the people and places in 1 Kings. So remember that, that so far we've seen the reign of wise King Solomon. And we've seen that because of Solomon's sin, his sin of intermarriage with the nations, his sin of idolatry, worshipping other gods, because of this, we saw last week, The kingdom is now divided. God has split it in two. And so now we have the north kingdom, 10 tribes of God's people, which is called Israel. And we have the south kingdom, one and a bit tribes of God's people, which is now called Judah. I think there's a map on the screen for us. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And we saw last week that we have King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon in the south in Judah, And then we have King Jeroboam in the north in Israel. And today we just focus on Jeroboam, just Jeroboam in the north kingdom in Israel as he is king there. And we see his reign in chapter 12 and 13 and chapter 14. And we don't have time to look into all those chapters. And so, of course, go and read them again this week so that you can get more out of them. But as we'll see, these chapters have a lot to do with with God's word, with trusting and obeying God's word or not? Will Jeroboam be the king who trusts and obeys God's word? That's the question we're asking in these chapters. Because back in chapter 11, this is a a bit more of a recap, uh, God's word had already come to Jeroboam. Before he became king, back in chapter 11, God said to Jeroboam, I'm going to make you king. I'm going to give you the 10 north tribes of Israel and you will be king there. And then he said this, this is the promise, this is the word of encouragement he gave to Jeroboam. 1 Kings 11 verse 38. God says to Jeroboam, after that, If you obey all I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes and my commands as my servant David did, I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David. And I will give you Israel. This is my word and promise to you, Jeroboam. Trust in me, obey me, and then your sons will reign after you. And so the question we're all asking as we read uh, Jeroboam, read about him is, will he trust? Will he obey God's word? And so we get these chapters today. And sadly, straight off the bat, we see Jeroboam's sin. So come with me. It's a cracker of a story, even though it's really sad. Come with me. Chapter 12, verse 25 on. We have Jeroboam's great sin. So Jeroboam becomes king. And what does he do? Well, he gets to work being a king. He starts building stuff. He builds up all the important cities of Israel. He kind of strengthens the borders and boundaries of the kingdom, which sounds wise, doesn't it? A king should protect his kingdom. That's what he should do. But then things take a turn very quickly in verse 26. As he does this, Jeroboam comes across a problem. Look at verse 26 with me. Jeroboam said to himself, The way things are going now, the kingdom might return to the house of David. If these people regularly go and offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, the heart of these people will return to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will murder me and go back to the king of Judah. What's Jeroboam's problem? He has a conflict of religion and politics. You see, Israel, uh, Israel, Israel's God is Yahweh, or at least he was meant to be their God. And Yahweh's temple, which Solomon had just built, was down in Jerusalem, in Judah, the south kingdom. And so if people in Israel, the north, wanted to worship Yahweh, if they wanted to obey his word and make sacrifices to him, they had to cross the border and go to the south kingdom, to Rehoboam's land. It's a little bit like Jeroboam is in George's River Council and he doesn't want people crossing the boundary into uh, Bayside Council. Uh, Jeroboam thinks that this travel back and forth will mean that people will eventually defect and turn away from him. And on one level, Jeroboam kind of sounds wise, doesn't he? Humanly speaking, a king should worry about his people turning to another king. That's a problem. But the real problem is, That Jeroboam is afraid. The real problem is that Jeroboam does not trust God's word. He isn't willing to trust. And so then he doesn't obey. Because what does Jeroboam do? Well, he fixes this political problem in his eyes with a religious solution. So look at verse 28 with me. It's a clever but shocking plan. Chapter 12, verse 28. So the king sought advice. Then he made two golden calves and he said to the people, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. Israel, here are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel and he put the other in Dan. This is Jeroboam's religious solution to his political problem. And it's a bit like a bad infomercial. Jeroboam says, instead of going to worship Yahweh all the way down in Jerusalem, let me make it easier for you, Israel. Here's two statues, two images, two for the price of one that are more convenient, closer to home, easier to get to. I'll put one down in Bethel, down in the south of our kingdom. And then I'll put one in Dan, right up in the north of our great nation. And so everyone in Israel can go to one or the other, whichever one you like. Go easy on yourself, Israel. Come and worship our God. You remember Yahweh, right? He saved us from our slavery in Egypt years ago. Come and worship him at these two statues. Don't be a fool and go all the way down to Jerusalem, to the temple there. Now, this is meant to shock us at this point. It's meant to make the loudest possible alarm bells ring in our ears. Why? Because what does God's word say? What are the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments? Straight from the mouth of God, number one, do not worship any other God but me. And number two, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or the earth below, like a calf, or in the waters under the earth. You must not Bow down to them and worship them. See, the alarm bells are ringing because Jeroboam has broken the first two of the Ten Commandments that God gave. And the alarm bells are ringing because Israel has already made this exact mistake, worshipping a gold calf way back in Exodus chapter 32. Back then in Moses' day, they said almost the exact same words as Jeroboam. Israel, this is your God, this gold calf, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so God punished them back then for this sin of idolatry, worshipping an idol, trying to worship God with a statue, with an image. And Jeroboam should have known this. And I think he probably did know it, but he still chose to do this anyway because it served his political ends. But Jeroboam then doesn't even stop there. Have a look at verse 31 and on. He takes it even further. If you're going to do it wrong, do it really wrong, seems to be Jeroboam's motto. Because Jeroboam, he starts breaking more and more of God's commands. He sets up altars for sacrifices when God had commanded that there will be one altar, one place where sacrifices would be made, the temple in Jerusalem. And then Jeroboam set up priests from any and every tribe of Israel. Anyone could be a priest when God had commanded that only Levites could be priests. And then Jeroboam makes a rival festival to the one in Jerusalem in a different month that he chooses, just out of his head. All of this is a fake copy of the true worship of Yahweh down in Jerusalem. And he makes it just similar enough and just different enough so that people will think it's legit, but easier. And so they'll stop going down to Judah, down to Jerusalem, to worship there. Jeroboam is politically savvy, but he's utterly evil. Jeroboam is clever. He's won the allegiance of his people, but at the cost of his soul. He's indirect disobedience to God's clear word. That's just a reminder to us, isn't it? Just a helpful reminder that it's not up to us to decide how we worship God. God tells us in his word how we should worship him and how we should live for him and what we should do, how to obey him. We don't get to decide. And if God says, do it like this, then we do it like that. And if God says, don't do that, then we don't do it. And that's why it's so sad and so awful that so many uh, so-called Christian traditions over the centuries have adopted images and statues and rituals and pictures for worship. They break God's word and they try to worship God in a way that he forbids, false ways. And they sadly, often, always actually, ignore the most wonderful way that God has opened up for us to worship him. Jesus, his son, and his death and resurrection and trusting in him. But all this, it just goes to show that Jeroboam does not trust or obey God's words. He does not trust his promise or obey his command. See, Jeroboam feared man. He feared what might happen instead of fearing the Lord, the one who is sovereign over all and the one whose word is truth. Well, now that Jeroboam has done this great sin, what will happen? How will God respond? Well, Jeroboam has broken God's word, but now in chapter 13, God's word comes against Jeroboam himself. And it, this really is a, a really great scene. It kind of reads like a great movie. It's, there's lots of action and it's focused on one of the altars, the altar that's down in Bethel. One of the gold cars there that he set up, Jeroboam set up the altar in Bethel, right down in the south of his kingdom, just near their border with Judah. And so Jeroboam is there and he's going about his business. He's making sacrifices on the altar. But then all of a sudden he gets a visit, a visit from a man of God he's called, a prophet, someone who speaks God's words. And where is this prophet from? Well, he's from Judah. He's from the South Kingdom, the place that Jeroboam is trying to be disconnecting from. So what does this prophet say? What word from God does he bring? Jeroboam's nightmares come true. Let's read it, chapter 13, verse 2. It says the man of God cried out against the altar by a revelation of the Lord. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David named Josiah and he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who are burning incense on you. Human bones will be burned on you. He gave a sign that day. He said, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar will now be ripped apart and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. Wow, what a message. It's kind of a funny message though, isn't it? Because uh, the word doesn't go to Jeroboam directly. He speaks to the altar the altar that Jeroboam has set up it's a message against this unauthorized altar but in effect the word is against Jeroboam because he's the one who set up this altar in the first place with its false sacrifices so what's the message well, the message is one day a faithful man will come and do what is right one day another king Josiah from the family line of David he will come and he will put an end to this altar to this idolatry he will rightly justly put to death the priests who work at this altar human bones will be burned on this altar which will make it defiled it will be useless it can't be used as an altar anymore jeroboam one day god will ensure that a faithful man will put a stop to this sinful place that you have made And the really amazing thing is that this exact prophecy is fulfilled by God some centuries later. You can read about it in 2 Kings, chapter 23, about King Josiah. King Josiah was a faithful king. He trusted and obeyed God's word, and he did what was just. He did exactly what the prophet says here and more. God's word never fails. You see, God's word is always faithful. He keeps it. And what he says always comes to pass. But Jeroboam does not like this message one little bit. Arrest this man, he shouts. Uh, But what happens next? Have a look at verse 4. He stretches out his hand to point at the prophet and instantly his arm withers. It it shrivels and he can't control it anymore. He can't even pull it back to himself. And then verse 5, something else happens. In the same instant, the altar, this false altar, Breaks apart and the ashes fall on the ground, just as God had said. So, this is God's verdict about this altar and about Jeroboam's idolatry. This altar, your idolatry, Jeroboam, is evil. It's abhorrent to me, God says. Well, Jeroboam is terrified, as you would understand. In verse 6, he cries out, Please pray for my hand. And the prophet does, and amazingly, God is gracious. He restores Jeroboam's hand. God continues to show grace to Jeroboam, though he doesn't deserve it, does he? But Jeroboam, he then tries to patch things up. He's probably a little bit embarrassed. He wants to save face a bit, and so he, he, he tries to be friendly. And it's almost as if he's he's trying to bargain with this prophet and try and bargain with God. Look at verse 7. He says to the prophet, come and eat with me and I'll give you a reward. I'll look after you. Let's just forget about this little misunderstanding that we had. It's like he thinks he can get on God's side by getting on side with God's prophet. But the prophet replies, have a look at verse 8. The man of God replied, if you were to give me half your house, I still wouldn't go with you. And I wouldn't eat bread or drink water in this place. Why? For this is what I was commanded by the word of the Lord. There it is again. You must not eat bread or drink water or go back the way you came. Again, this is God's judgment against Jeroboam and Israel. He told the prophet, don't even eat or drink in this land. This place is stained by sin. And so off the prophet goes back home to Judah, obeying God's word, unlike Jeroboam. And that's kind of the end of this episode, this part of the story. Because then from verse 11 on, we get this really, really strange side story. And I think it's one of the weirdest stories in all the whole Bible. Uh, We don't actually have time to deal with it all now, uh, but it's got two prophets, one deception, and one lion in it, which I think is pretty cool. And like I said, it's just this really weird story. You can read it for yourself. But the point is, again, God calls us to trust and obey his word. And this is not at all what Jeroboam and what Israel are doing at this time. And we we see the point of it all at the end of chapter 13. So flick there now. The sad reality is spelt out clearly for us in chapter 13, verse 33. After all this, Jeroboam did not repent of his evil way, but he continued in all his idolatry and false worship. Verse 34, this was the sin that caused the house of Jeroboam, all his family, to be wiped out and annihilated from the face of the earth. And if you turn over to chapter 14, we see God's word comes to Jeroboam again. And again, it's not good. Turn to chapter 14, verse 9. There's another story there, but you can read that in your own time. We're just going to read uh, God's words in this chapter. Jeroboam, he doesn't repent, even though he had every opportunity to. He had the promise that if he walked in the ways of David, if he trusted and obeyed God's word, God would give him a lasting dynasty. But God says, chapter 14, verse 9, You, Jeroboam, have behaved more wickedly than all who were before you. In order to provoke me, you proceeded to make for yourselves other gods and cast images, the calves, but you have flung me behind your back. Because of all this, I am about to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will eliminate all of Jeroboam's males, both slave and free in Israel. I will sweep away the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. Such confronting words, aren't they? But God's righteous judgment comes on Jeroboam's house. And in the end, it does come on Jeroboam's house. We read it in the the following weeks, in the coming chapters. And it all happened because Jeroboam did not trust, did not obey God's word, all because he feared what might happen instead of fearing the Lord and living for him. And so these chapters and Jeroboam's bad example, well, they have some important things to teach us. So as we bring it together, what lessons do these chapters show us? The first thing in these chapters, the first thing they show us is that sin is serious. God's judgment on Jeroboam here, it sounds confronting, but it is fully deserved. God is not being over the top here. Idolatry is the very height of evil because it's giving the glory that belongs to the majestic God of the universe and that belongs to him alone, to something or someone else. He will not give his glory to another so-called God. He alone is holy, wonderful, glorious, majestic. And we as his people know that, don't we? And so it's only right, it's only fitting, it's only just that he gets all the glory. He deserves it all. And so in his justice, God will hold to account all, every one of us, who has worshiped other gods or tried to worship him in a way that he has commanded not to but he is gracious he shows mercy still and he has opened the way for us to repent and to come back to him the new testament uh, talks about this over and over again it shows us this wonderful truth that the gospel is gra- of grace is for those who worship idols and who repent. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 1. How Paul says this about the Thessalonian Christians. He says, You turned or you repented to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. God's grace is always on offer to idolaters like you and me people who worship idols and images and things and stuff and people instead of giving worship rightly to the one true God. And it's when we see the awfulness of sin like Jeroboam's and when we see his great anger at sin like we do with Jeroboam here, it's then that we appreciate all the more the amazing grace and kindness and love God shows us. Despite our awful sin, despite the fact that every one of us turns away from Him, He still chooses to love us. And so the message for us is repent, turn back to the one true God, either for the first time or for the thousandth time. Throw away your idols and come to the feet of Jesus, to God's Son, and trust in Him. Then you are forgiven. Saved from God's wrath and given eternal life through him. And you have the great joy of living for him now and giving him glory in every day and every decision in your life. Sin is serious. So turn and keep turning from the idols that we might worship and turn to Jesus and be saved. Number two. These chapters show us that God's word is trustworthy. Time and time again, that's what the story shows us, doesn't it? God's word is shown to be true and trustworthy. What he says goes. What he says will happen, happens. And so these chapters show us that we should trust and we should obey God's word. They show us that we should trust and obey his word even when it is incredibly hard or even when it doesn't really make sense to us. You see, it didn't make sense for Jeroboam to let people keep going to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. He was afraid that they would turn away from him. But if he trusted in God's word, if he obeyed God's word and let them go, well, the opposite would have happened. God would have blessed him with a strong kingdom and given him a lasting dynasty. Doesn't that happen time and time again in the Bible and in the life of every believer all the time like Jeroboam we are faced with the decision do I trust God's word and obey him or do I give in to fear or selfishness or pride and take things into my own hands do it do I subtly bend God's word or just gently ignore it so that I can do what I want in my own way Do I trust God's word, even if it doesn't make sense to me at the time or to the world around us? And there's a thousand examples of this that we could pull out of the Scriptures, but here's just a few. Do we trust God and do we trust God's word when it says what it says about marriage, when it says about sex and sexuality, even if it doesn't make sense to our world? that marriage is a lifelong union between a man and a woman, and that is the only improper context for sex? Or do we trust what God's word says about government? Submit to the authorities, even if you disagree with them. And do we trust what God's word says about believing in Jesus at all, that we should stay true to Jesus, even if it costs money, or family and friends, or your job, or even your life? Do you trust God's word that Jesus will return to judge and save? Even though time keeps rolling on and people keep saying, where is your Jesus? Well, I could go on and on and on with examples. But at the end of the day, what do we do? How do we trust and obey God's word and keep going? Well, at the end of the day and the beginning of the day and all day, we look beyond King Jeroboam we look to king jesus don't we and when we look to jesus and we look at king jesus what do we see when we see jesus we see a man completely unlike jeroboam we see one who trusted and obeyed god his father always we see a king who leads us his people in right worship of the one true god and then we see and when we see jesus we see the one whose words, whose very words we should trust and obey. Because not only does he trust and obey God's word, he speaks the very words of God. And he himself is the word of God in the flesh. And so we trust and obey like Jesus, our example, and we trust and obey Jesus and his words because he is our king and our God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as we're confronted with the challenging words of One King tonight, we pray that you would humble us before you, that you'd help us to see the sin of idolatry is evil in your eyes and deserving of your just punishment. But we again thank and praise you that that just punishment fell on Jesus as he went to the cross for us we praise and thank you that he died for all our idolatry and for every sin. We praise you that we can know you through him. And we pray that you would help us to worship you alone, throwing away the idols that distract us and lead us away from you. And to help us do that, we pray that you would help us look to Jesus, our great King, and follow his example and listen to his words and trust and obey him. We pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.